Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday is the show where each and every single Friday I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Of course, Felony Friday is only one of the three shows we have here on Lions of Liberty. We have a bit of a variety show on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Our first show of the week every Monday is hosted by Mark Clare. Mark interviews leaders in the Liberty movement. He hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And you can get all three of these shows delivered to your phone by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever it is you get your podcast these days. This is the 111th episode of Felony Friday, so that means you'll be able to find the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF111, and that's going to have links and notes to everything that I'm going to talk about with my guest today. I want to tell you guys about the sponsor for today's show. Today's show is sponsored by RDAP Dan Prison Consultants. If you or someone you know is facing the prospect of going to prison, because as we talk about on this show often, facing a federal case can be an extremely stressful time, and you'll be faced with confronting a situation that is unfamiliar and confusing. That is why you need to talk to Dan Wise, also known as RDAP Dan, and his team of specialists who will help you fight for your freedom. Your attorney handles the legal aspects of your case, but a prison consultant helps you to qualify for sentence reduction programs, avoid common mistakes that zap your chances of early release, and to keep a handle on anxiety and stress during the process. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting lionsofliberty.com slash RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com slash R-D-A-P. My guest today on Felony Friday is Trey Johns. Trey grew up on the south side of Chicago at the height of the crack epidemic in the late 80s, early 90s. And five days after graduating from college, Trey was sentenced to 13 years in federal prison for only $500 worth of drugs. While in prison, Trey became a very talented jailhouse lawyer and returned home a great organizer. Trey has spent time in Job Corps, United States Navy, Community College, University, raised eight children, sold drugs, graduated on the dean's list, and while in prison, went to five different prisons. While in prison, filed hundreds of motions in federal court for other prisoners. Trey, welcome to Felony Friday. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking some time to to come on the show and, and share with my audience here. And uh, what I'd like to do with, with my guests before we really get into your story, because, you know, as as uh, as we talked about in our pre-show chat, this show is all about you, all about sharing your story, talking about 
injustice in the criminal justice in the criminal justice system uh, that you experienced. But before we do that, uh, can you share with my audience a little bit about your your background? You know, I talked about you growing up in Chicago. Tell us a little about a little bit about what that was like. Um, what that what you experienced growing up. Well, growing up in Chicago, I mean, I realized when I became grown how poor we really were. And even though we really stayed in one of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago, I mean, I I had a relatively playful childhood. You know, when I turned into a teenager, 13, 14, you know, I, I ran the streets and I hung out with the gang members and stuff. And then I went to Job Corps at 17 and joined the Navy at 17 also to just get away from the violence of Chicago. You So did you experience violence and, and drugs growing up early in your you know early years or? In, in my early years, I didn't experience violence and drugs personally, but I can remember stepping over a dead body in fifth grade just to get to school. You know, all my cousins were in gangs and, All my uncles sold drugs and things like that, but it wasn't like directly impacted in my life until I became a teenager and started hanging out with my cousins. And I mean, I was the only girl, but I was just as involved in being a gang member and fighting and, you know, running the drugs. I was I didn't sell them as a as a small teenager, but I was running them, you know, watching security for ten dollars a week and stuff like that, because that's the only things they would allow us girls to do in the gang back then. It was either that or the other things that they allow girls to do in the game. <laughs> so did, did you join the Navy to try to get away from this or what, what, what prompted you to, to join the Navy? Well, I, I went into job Corps at 17 and I graduated because I didn't graduate high school, but I got my GED six months before I was scheduled to graduate high school. And my mom told me, she said, I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to have to come back to Chicago and get a job. But I really don't want you on these streets. And she said that to me and I didn't pay her any attention. And then I left and came back. And when I came back in the house, there was a Navy recruiter sitting on the couch. I I didn't. I mean, it was like the draft. So. (laughs) So, yeah. That's how I got into the Navy. It was like go or go. Yeah. So it wasn't wasn't exactly uh, you know, your choice per se. Yeah, it it was, wasn't high on my priority list. Yeah. So how how <laughs> and, long were you in the Navy for? Well, I was only in the Navy for 13 months. They they I had I was assaulted in the Navy. I was one of the first women on the ship. It was 48 women with about 300 men. And they there was this was during the time when the don't ask, don't tell mm-hmm. came out. And basically, if a man in the military asked you to have sex with him and you didn't, he just said that you were gay and they would kick you out. So I was discharged on a condition that wasn't a disability after 13 months. And that condition was homosexuality. So I didn't wow. have the greatest time in the military, but that, and that's, what's on my DD 214, my, my, uh, separation papers, my condition, that's not a disability. You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, I think we forget cause how, you know, I feel like we've progressed a little bit as a society in the past decade here, 
Yeah, it was not too long ago when don't ask, don't tell. That was the official. That was what they followed in in the in the military. Yeah, and it was horrible. It was the most horrible thing that a woman could ever go through in the military. Literally, I mean that 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 piece of legislation is why I would never in my life vote for anybody named Clinton, ever, ever. <laughs> because because Bill Clinton was a president and did nothing to change that. Is that no? Because he implemented it. <laughs> oh, he implemented he, he, it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I guess president, I don't know. I don't know the history of the law that well. I guess it was it was in nineteen ninety three. Okay, it was Bill Clinton's "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Yeah, for some reason I thought it was around longer than that. Okay, but yeah, that that would make sense then. Why you wouldn't vote for uh, anyone with the anyone named Clinton? Okay. Uh, well, ne- neither will I, but for different reasons. But, <laughs> uh, but, but that's, I think that's still a very, very good reason. So I'll add that to my list of reasons for never voting for a uh, for a Clinton okay. there. But uh, Trey, I, I wanted to ask you about. So you know, reading in your bio here, saying that you were sentenced um, after graduating from college. So you graduated from college and you're sentenced to 13 years in federal prison for $500 worth of drugs. Can it, you, it was less than five hundred dollars. Less than five hundred dollars <laughs> worth of drugs. Can, can you take us through uh, what what happened there? Oh, I was twenty six years old. I had eight children, all under the age of twelve. Four of them were my my sister's children because she was strung out on drugs. Three of them were my brother's children, and he was incarcerated. And one of them was my biological son. I was a full time student at SIU Carbondale in Illinois. I had a two bedroom apartment. I I was married and I also had um, a a full-time job at Golden Corral as a waitress. I sold 9.5 grams of crack cocaine and I was charged with conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine. And I was released on um, pretrial because the judge said that I had never been in trouble so that I should be allowed to continue to go to school because maybe that would help me. So he allowed me to stay out on pretrial and complete my degree. And five days after I graduated, he sentenced me to 12 years, seven months, because he said I should have known better because I was too educated to sell drugs. So after he was telling you to go back to school... Then after you graduated, you flipped that around on you and said, well, now that you're educated, you should have known better. Yeah, he used it against me, basically. It was like, yeah, he used my education against me. So, but I mean, after then, you know, it was, hey, that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, this is a crazy story here. So you're you're caring for eight kids at this time. You're going to school. You're you're working all these jobs. Um, you, you You go to prison. What happened to all the kids? Who who was their caretaker after that? Uh, my poor babies. Fortunately, my, my son was taken very well care of by uh, my in-laws. Uh, my, my sister's four kids, they were separate. They were put into foster care in Chicago with one of my cousins who decided to beat them. They all, they, at this time they were, they were like 14, 15. They were growing up a little bit. So they all decided to, to fight back and they left, they ran away. So my sister's four kids were separated and they, they grew up on their own. My brother's three kids lived in squalor. I mean, pure, unadulterated poverty and squalor 
for years. I mean, they were still in squalor when I got out nine years later. So it was those children were not better off without me, you know, and out of the out of the eight of them, I think two graduated high school. But fortunately, none of my kids have felonies and none of them are in prison, but they didn't. They just had to grow up the hard way, the best way that they could. Yeah. I mean, the reason I asked that question, um, well, I mean, for, for one thing, I, I was curious for their, for their well being, but I think it's important to highlight. I mean, you're, you're one person going away to prison, right? So you were sentenced to 12 years, seven months, I think you said, essentially, essentially 13 years. And judges taking it out on you, um, locking you away. But people don't think about the, you know, the the rippling effect of that on on the collateral damage. Exactly, and often the collateral damage, it's it's more than just than just what's evident, than what's seen. The the unseen is uh, it can and it can be collateral damage. It could still be rippling out um, from for for years and years, and it's it's terrible. Yeah, it is. You know? I, mean, I left my son; he was six. I came home; he was fourteen. And our first few years home were they they were difficult. They were very very difficult. Can you elaborate as as to why or, or give us a? I'm, honestly, he was angry. My son was angry. He was 14 years old. Uh, he was raised. I mean, I'm I'm African American. My son's African American, but he was raised by white people, and he was raised a whole lot different than the way I was raised in Chicago. And when I came home, our personalities are so similar, even though we had been apart for so long that we just clashed. He would he didn't want to accept, you know, me being his parent because he didn't know me. And I understood that. But at the same time, I was like, I'm a mama from Chicago. So you just going to listen to me. And that's just it. And and at some point I had to understand that my child was hurting. My child was angry. And one of us had to be the adult because at one point in time, I put my son in foster care since I've been home. He was 14 when I came home when he was 15 years old. I called the courthouse. I told them they had to come come get him. And I literally went to the courthouse and signed a petition saying that I abandoned my 15 year old child so that the state of Illinois could take custody of him because one of us was one of us was going to hurt the other one in that house (laughs) because we just we couldn't get along. And I needed to understand that the best thing for my son was not for him to be with me at that time because we didn't know how to be together. So he was in foster care for. Uh, about 18, no, probably about 12 months in Illinois, but I saw him every day because his foster family lived right down the street and he used to climb through my window and eat all my food in my house every single day. But what the state did was pay for counseling. And, and he went to a counselor and I went to a counselor and we went to counseling together because it was very difficult for him to understand why I left and went to prison. And the only thing he thought was I left because I was taking care of all those other children and I should have only been taking care of him. And he was, he was, he was angry. And I mean, he still holds some resentment. Me and my son, we still clash heads and he just turned 21 two weeks ago, but he, he, he held a lot of resentment for a very long time. He still don't speak to anyone else in the family. 
That's unfortunate, but it's you know good to hear that you and your son, uh, your relationship is, is is doing better. That's great. Um, you know, next thing I want to ask you about, you know, sometimes a lot of the time um, when I ask people about their time in prison, obviously it's not the most pleasant time to be in, not the most pleasant to talk about, but I got to ask you about it. So you spent what? How much time did you end up? You were sentenced to twelve years, seven months. How much time did you end up serving? I spent eight years, seven months, and 19 days in prison thanks to the crack law uh, that came out in 2008, something like that. It it cut me from 12 years, seven months to 10 years, one month. And my time in prison, I can't, the only horrible thing about prison for me was the separation from my child because I love my son. But my time in prison, it was it was not horrible. It wasn't because I'm a I'm a boisterous person. I down. I started at Greenville Federal Prison. It's a camp. Uh, it's in Illinois. It was only 45 minutes from my house. And I stayed there for four and a half years. You know, I taught everything in prison. I taught legal writing. I taught uh, GED. I taught reading. I taught math. I taught science. I taught boot camp. I taught uh, calisthenics. I taught crocheting. I taught knitting. If it was anything in prison that somebody wanted to learn, they would ask me. And if I didn't know how to do it, I learned it. I taught over a hundred different classes. I taught a class called how to be free and stay that way. I taught reentry classes, I taught resources classes, anything sisters needed. I taught and I did paperwork for free. I filed a, um, a writ of habeas corpus for, for a sister that robbed that was took part in robbing a bank and she won and she came to me and she said, my mom paid $40,000 for this lawyer and you got me out of prison for a 12 pack of Pepsi and three candy bars. (laughs) (laughs) And still to this day, I can call her right now and she said, do you need anything? I will fly to you right now. (laughs) And and that that was my impact at Greenville Prison. And then they they got mad at me because the warden came to me and told me that I had too much power on the prison because everybody loved me. I was the grade one welder. And then so I was transferred. I was transferred from Illinois to West Virginia. I stayed in West Virginia about seven or eight months. I n- never got into any altercations or fights or stabbings. Basically, I just was a thorn in the side of the administration. I I basically pissed off every prison official that I could find in life and pissed them off. So they transferred me from West Virginia to Minnesota. They put us 22 and a half hours on a bus, handcuffed and shackled in the middle of winter with a T-shirt on and Uh, those very thin pants and they didn't even tell us where we were going. They just put us on the bus in the middle of the night. And when I got to Waseca, Minnesota, here's, here's a good story Mm -hmm. in Waseca, Minnesota. I literally built my own prison. I was the only welder. I was a grade one welder. We were the first women to turn Minnesota from men to women. So we were the first 80 women. Okay. And so when they started hiring for the facilities, of course, I got hired as a welder because I was one of the best welders in the federal prison system. So the uh, prison was a medium security for men. 
But the warden decided he wanted to up security. So I literally would have taken one tape measure, measured 450 odd windows and went downstairs, got a team. I made bars for I, I cut bars and made bars for every single window in the prison and installed them. And the last set of bars that I put up was to close myself up in my own room. Wow. Every set of bars in that prison I put up, I built. And I was like, I'm I'm building my own prison here. This this something about this should be psychologically <laughs> building your own wrong. prison around you. Yeah. So yeah, how, so yeah. did you learn how to weld in prison or before prison? I, I learned how to weld in the Navy. I perfected welding in prison. So okay. I got my apprenticeship. I I, I taught welding also. I, I got my apprenticeship. It was a three thousand hour apprenticeship, and then I taught about. 75 women how to weld and many of them are doing very very well today so how, how did that work with getting paid for your welding in prison how much did you get 40 paid? cents an hour 40, 40 cents an hour. 40 yeah that's because i was the grade one yeah wow. that's because i was the grade one now everybody else made like 22 cents you know or 12 cents but i was the grade one so i made 40 cents an hour and uh, they, they're allowed to give you a bonus every month, which is half your pay. So like half of that 40 cents an hour for the 40 or 100 or whatever hours we worked that month. So we would usually make about I would usually make about sixty five dollars a month. But fortunately for me, my my family well not my family. My husband took very well good care of me. He sent me three hundred dollars a month the entire time I was in prison, all eight and a half years. So I never I didn't I never had to be without in prison, you know, and I was I was I was okay because I was just me. I was that type of person. When I left Minnesota because I um needed to get closer to my son, I hadn't seen my son in two years. I transferred back to Pekin, Illinois to take the drug program. Well, I wasn't getting any time off of the drug program because I'm not a drug addict. And so they told me I could take it, but I couldn't get a year off because I never had any reported history of drugs. But I took the drug program to get close to my son. Well, you don't know how much you know about the RDAP program in the federal system, but basically is you gotta drink the Kool-Aid and I wasn't thirsty. So basically mm -hmm. they kicked me out, they kicked me out of the drug program. It was it was smooth. They set me up. They closed peaking for women and they were changing it over to men. And they told us that it would be about a month before everybody was transferred and the people in RDAP would be transferred last. So I was in RDAP and I'm thinking I'm getting transferred last. So on a uh, ironically, I'm not ironically, coincidentally, on a Sunday, I got an incident report from an officer because I didn't have my top button on my shirt buttoned up. So Monday, when they called me to the office, they said, you got an incident report, so we're going to kick you out the drug program. Monday afternoon, they called me and told me to pack up my stuff because I was on the list to be transferred to Danbury, Connecticut the next day. I said, y'all so petty. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't like me because I had three lawsuits against uh, Pekin Prison in different people's names for uh, different violations, because I like to sue people. So you, 
So well, th- that brings up a good point and a question I wanted to ask you. You you got into filing motions for other prisoners, and obviously I, you just said filing lawsuits. How did you get interested in the law? And obviously you were all self-educated, right? Um, so how did you self-educate yourself? No, actually, I've never wanted to be anything else but a lawyer. In second grade, I had decided I was going to be the first black female to sit on the Supreme Court. And that's the only thing I ever wanted to do in life. So I was ready to be a lawyer the day that I graduated and they decided I was going to prison. So going to prison and actually studying the law because pretty much self-taught because I just went in and started doing it. But this was back when they didn't have LexisNexis on the computers. All we had was hundreds and hundreds of outdated old law books to try to free yourself with. So sitting there reading case after case, I literally read over 500 cases my first month trying to do my own appeal. But that's how that's how I got. I mean, I've always been into the law. I've never wanted to really do anything else except do the law or build stuff that I don't, I guess that's why welding come in because I love to build stuff, Mm -hmm. but I look at them both the same, the same way, you know, an incident report, basically looking for that needle in the haystack, you know, that, that one, that one case that'll vindicate you or whatever you're looking for and things like that. And so it was, when I went to prison, it was just what I was supposed to do. I mean, mainly the motions that I filed was for custody when the judges tried to take my sister's kids from them or tell them they had to sign over their parental rights because they were in prison. And I would tell them that, no, no, you don't. You don't have to. And we're not gonna. And I have fought many, many battles uh, in custody cases across this country for women that were incarcerated trying to keep their children. So... You know, that's something that's not talked about a lot. I I think people on the outside don't understand that there's people like yourself, and I've had a a couple others on the show. A lot of them actually, when they get out of prison, they end up becoming prison consultants. But while they're in prison, they really dedicate themselves, like you have done, uh, to being jailhouse lawyers and helping other prisoners, really just because they love doing it, which is is just, just incredible. I want to share with you all a very important service that can help you or someone you know who's going to prison. As I've documented many times on this show, sometimes even good people end up in prison. And facing a federal sentence can be an incredibly stress-filled time. If you're facing this reality, then you need to contact Dan Wise, also known as RDAP Dan. I promise you that Dan and his team of prison consultants will reduce your stress level immediately after speaking with them on the phone. If you retain Dan's services, you can call him and his team any time of day or night, giving you and your loved ones open access to support and answers. Dan and his team assist with the following aspects of the process. Narrative letters to the judge, character reference letters, RDAP qualification, prison designation, online reputation management, mindset coaching, and also additional halfway house time to shorten your time in prison. Now, don't sleep on this one, guys. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting lionsofliberty.com RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com R-D-A-P. Is there any case or is there any, any motion, anyone that you helped that 
really stands out to you as something that you're really especially proud of outside of anything you've already talked about? Well, I, I guess it it, it it goes slightly between pride and, 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 and utter sadness because my wife, who I'm who I'm married to right now, I met her in prison and I was doing her paperwork and it was it was a very difficult, difficult case. It was a case about violence, but I, I was doing her paperwork and it, the ridiculousness of the government. And when we filed the motion in the appellate court in Hawaii, we won. We we won. We won an unbunk hearing because the first we we lost the first motion. Then I filed for an unbunk hearing, which is which is all of the justices in the uh, appellate court. They get together and decide on an issue that a three panel judge maybe have denied. All the justices get a chance to look at that issue. And so when I won that hearing, you know, which is like unheard of, especially from a prisoner, you know, I was I was oh, my God, I was cartwheeling. But then my wife at that time, you know, she came in to the cell and she was just like, I I just need you to stop fighting because it was hard on her and it was hard on her family and it was difficult on her children and and people are mean, you know, so to fight would have hurt her more than I mean, I don't know, but she asked me to stop fighting. And so I couldn't continue on with the case after we had won this unprecedented hearing. So that was like a great victory in a, you know, in a in a bad way. Yeah. So it was it was just by winning, it would have just brought on more, more from the state, more uh, just you know, too much pressure to deal with, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it would have brought it up again, mm-hmm. you know. And it had been not really buried, but you know, it's one of those cases that that you know people aren't aren't fond of, so it, it, it's treated differently. So it's just like. It was it was a catch twenty two. It was it was rough. You know, we never never ever ever thought we would win the hearing. So, but when we did, I was kind of surprised and upset that she didn't want to keep going. But I had to respect her wishes. So, when did you get released from prison? I got released in two thousand and eleven. Uh, and then I got I vi- they violated me. I'm not gonna say I violated. They violated me. Because my mom had a stroke in Chicago and I, my probation is in southern Illinois, which is 300 miles south of Chicago, still in the state of Illinois. But I got on the highway and went to see about my mom and I called my PO and I told him that I was on the interstate going to Chicago because my mother had had a stroke. And two months later, they violated me and said that I called after I had left the district and not before. And so they put me back in prison for four months. Wow. In 2015, I lost my house. I had just bought a $169,000 house because my second year out of prison, I was making $65,000 as an engineer at Continental Tire. So it was it was pretty disheartening. I think those four months were worse than those nine years. Because I was the person during those nine years that was upset with my sisters coming back because I told them that you're the reason I can't get out. And a lot of these sisters serving 20 and 30 years can't get out because y'all go home and y'all come right back. 
So for me to come back, it was disappointing and disheartening, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when I knew I should have never went back because I didn't do anything, you know? Yeah. So, so what, what kind of obstacles did you face? Um, it's, it sounds like you, you didn't face, at least initially, didn't have an obstacle. You were able to find a, a good job, it sounds like. But, did, I mean, did you have problems with, uh, with employment, finding housing, uh, things like that after getting out of prison? Did that stigma follow you, the felony it, stigma? It didn't follow me at first because, fortunately for me, like I said, my husband, when I came home, he, he gave me the place. He gave me the apartment. He gave me the apartment, my son, and he was like, peace out. <laughs> and so I had somewhere to live. I had stability, of course. You know, he paid up the bills until I could find a job. Actually, my second day out of prison, I had a job at a cleaners making $10 an hour. And by my second month, I was the manager. And then after my probably about a year, that's when I started working at uh, Continental Tire. So I didn't have those difficulties at first. The difficulties came in when I tried to, when I tried to buy a house, uh, when I tried to move, you know, when mm-hmm. I, when I tried to move into a bigger place and when, when I left the job at Continental Tire, I, I've never had problems getting a job because I got a college degree. I'm welder. I'm a certified welder with over 15 years experience. So getting a job has never been a problem for me. I'm, I'm more f- fortunate than most people that get released because I do have the education to balance out my felony. That's what I like to say. I can at least balance out my felony with all my um, education and experience in working. But the biggest obstacles for me was just, you know, being reintegrated into my family with my son. Uh, when I, when I went to try to buy a house, I didn't have any credit. You know, my, uh, student loans had accrued over $21,000 in interest in the nine years I was in prison. So I was over $75,000 in debt for this bachelor's degree (laughs) that I got before I went to prison. And so that, that was a, um, a hindrance, my credit, you know, because I didn't have a credit history because I had been locked up. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a didn't have a work history because I've been locked up. But it wasn't it wasn't I didn't get the job like because I was locked up. I didn't get the job because I didn't have the history to verify. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I experienced difficulties for uh, other problems other than just because I had been locked up. So what uh what advice would you have for for other people out there who have you know maybe they're listening to this podcast and they're about to go into prison or you know maybe they just got out and they're and they're struggling trying to figure out what direction to go into um what, what advice would you have for someone like that right now Well anybody that's going in you know the only advice that I could actually give you is just to Believe in yourself that you can do it. You know, I I can't I don't have a remedy for surviving prison because, hell, I laughed and joked most of the time I was in prison. And that's maybe why people didn't like it. But um, coming out of prison, I, I, um, I suggest people find organizations in your area because they're out there. One of the biggest problems that women and men returning home is they can't find the services. 
And that's, you know, what my uh, organization, which is Fed Fam for Life, we're trying to connect those people with those services. You know, we spec- we specifically work with women, but, you know, I love my brothers, too. There are so many organizations out here getting the funding to do the work and they can't find those people. And then you have those those people sitting in those halfway houses that don't know where those resources are, which is one of the reasons why also part of my organization is to fund jailhouse lawyers where they can be they can have access to those resources. When I was locked up, I taught I taught a class called how to be free and stay that way. And what that class did was within six months of a sister going home, I would write the halfway house to where she was releasing to and get all that information from her, from them, get a job list from them. I would get housing referrals if I could, if I could get them, you know, depending on how nice the person at the halfway house is, you know, some halfway houses will send you a ton of information where some just don't care. But we got those resources and those infor- that information for sisters before they went home. That way, when they went home, they had a phone number and somewhere they had a, a, a purpose. They said, I can go here and get this type of help instead of getting out saying, where can I go? Who can help me? You know, because it's just not it's not it's not fair for us to think that people can get out of prison after 10 and 15 years and run out and get a job at, a, at with a living wage and and take care of themselves and it's just going to be all right. That is so unfair for us to treat people like that. You know, and, and the halfway house, you only get 6 months and you got but if you've been locked up 22 years, what what what, what do you want me to do? If I'm a 65-year-old woman getting out of prison after 15 or 20 years, what is it exactly that you want me to do? Mm-hmm. you know so just from the technological side of it i mean it's an entirely different world than it was 20 years ago entirely i mean you could come out and not even recognize the world as it is today with with cell phones and even even the way the cars are i mean it's like it's totally different driving a car today than it was 20 years ago that's a huge it's a huge learning curve and yet like hardly any of that stuff is uh is taught in prison and right you know, it's it's amazing. I think it's it's worth bringing up that you coming out of prison and having that skill, being a welder, that's a great asset to have. But I I don't think they're really teaching many people how to weld in prison. Maybe they're they're teaching some. You you taught a bunch yourself, but right. You know, you but would the, think but, right. The welding program probably only holds it. The women's section probably only holds four women. And even that, right, I'm a welder, but I tell I'm 42 years old. I don't want to do that to my body, you know, and I'm a woman. So you 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 teach these women these skills. I mean, but you still don't let them out to their 40 and 50 years old, you know, and you think they're going to go do construction and plumbing, you know, yeah. when they're 50 yeah. years old, because that's what you taught them. That's all you taught them. So it's you know, we got to we got to try to get I think. One of the one of the best things that we need to do is try to get people in place. I encourage minorities to apply for corrections officer jobs, police officer jobs, because my son wants to be a police officer. And they're like, why would he be a police officer? I say, I would love for my son to be a police officer because then I don't have to worry about him shooting somebody on the street. 
I, I just don't worry about that, you know? And we need people in these positions that hold the same values that we do. You know, we need to elect people and put them in office that understand real criminal justice reform, that understand that the the prison industrial complex in its current form is just simply a failure in every facet before, during, and after the prison industrial complex is a failure. It doesn't work. It doesn't even, it doesn't work in no way, form, or fashion. Even the death, the death penalty doesn't even work. It all, it's all broke. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So well, we I get- mean, I, I would agree with you. It, of course, it's broken. It doesn't work as a reasonable, rational person would think it would work, which would actually be to, you know, reform people and let them come out on the other side with some skills and be able to, you know, find some success in uh, in society. But it is working for some people. It's working for uh, these private prison owners who are lining their pockets. It's working for a lot of these people who are employed by the prisons. It's working for police departments who get so much funding for going out and arresting minorities, arresting people on you know these just ridiculous victimless crimes, drug charges, things like that. So it it is working for the wrong people, and that's that's the problem. Not, and I, I mean, I think I'm not I, even gonna say the wrong people. It's working for who it was designed to work for. Exa- exactly. That, <laughs> I guess that's what I was trying to get at. You you, you nailed it right there. <laughs> we had to get that one together. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't designed for me, so I shouldn't have no expectation that it it will work for me. I mean, that's that's just realistic. I shouldn't have that expectation mm-hmm. that I would be treated. Barely. And just one quick uh, uh, anecdote, you know, about two weeks ago, my wife and I was driving through Ohio and she's still on federal probation and we passed the police officer. She was driving and he came behind us. He pulled up to the side. He looked at me. I was on the passenger seat. He pulled behind us and he pulled us over. He told us she was going 76 in a 70. Wow. She's on federal probation. He took her out the car. And put her in the back of the police car. And this is for a speeding ticket. About 20 minutes, then he come back. They call another car. They call the dog car. And they come pull me out the car. And put me in the car with the dog. Searched our car for about 15, 20, 30 minutes while we sitting on the side of the highway. And then he said, oh, okay, y'all can go now. Really? Y'all seem like two nice ladies. Really? (laughs) and he told my wife he said well because he said these exact words because you're a woman you may not understand that your speedometer can actually read 76 and you could really be going 80 you might not understand that though and I just looked at her and just nodded and just shook my head like we on probation you know (laughs) every right every right that we had was going to be violated simply because she was on federal probation. And if we would have said, no, you can't search the car, they would have arrested her. Mm-hmm. That's so, a, I mean, I, I want to say unbelievable, but it's not unbelievable. That's, like you said, it's the system, the, the system as it was designed, it's being implemented as it was designed. And we're stuck with that system until we change it. And you were saying before, the way to change that is to get involved, get people elected and actually change the system 
from within, from the top. Get get people who actually understand how flawed and broken this system is to uh, to change it. And I, I agree with you. I think that's the only way we change it. You know, you can only sit back and you know vote for so long, or you know vote for this candidate or for that candidate, and then watch them not do anything that they said they're going to do because the people paying them the money are not. I mean, it's not you and I. It's it's uh, special interests. It's people who are aligned with the current policies. Until we, like I, I told other people, I said, I'm starting this organization because at some point you got to do more than hold up a sign. So, you yeah, tell, tell me about, um, tell me more about this organization that you founded. What's the website? Where can people learn more about it? Well, FedFam for Life, it's F-E-D, F-A-M, the number four and the word life. And it basically, it was born and cultivated in federal prison. And I literally have hundreds of sisters across this country. And what this organization is going to do is connect those sisters that are already out with sisters that are coming out. We're going to uh, provide re-engagement housing. And our re-engagement housing is going to look different than the regular sober house that ends up with bed bugs in like six or seven months. No, we're going to offer women centralized electronic monitoring. We're working with the probation office in Boston to try to allow at least two women or three women to occupy a two-bedroom apartment and have centralized electronic monitoring for both of them. That way, because a lot of women's barrier to freedom is simply a landline. You know, they can't go home because nobody has a telephone anymore. So we're trying to do uh, re-engagement housing different on that front We're also going to offer a newsletter, you know, to go into the sisters inside to try to identify them when they're on their way out and see if we could uh, hook them up with the services and the referrals that they need. Because everyone won't need housing, just like everyone won't need education. Some people may need technical skills and some people may not. So we're trying to do individualized services for our sisters inside and my my passion always is advocacy. I'm going to build a national advocacy group that only supports jailhouse lawyers, literally. And that support could be something as simply as a $9 typewriter ribbon. You know, I got a guy out in Washington right now. All he needed for me to do was to uh, mail the letter to the governor because they wouldn't let him mail it out the prison to the governor. So he sent it to me and all he wanted me to do was mail it to the governor, you know. So something as simple as that could support these people inside that are actually doing the work that does actually change our laws and put us in positions to have things like the Barber Amendment. And you can find out more about FedFam for Life at FedFamForLife.org or FedFam for Life on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's just FedFam for Life. Okay, well, I will link to all of that on the show notes page. Trey, thank you so much for coming on the show, being so generous with your time, talking about your story. And also, I mean, it's incredible how much you've done while you were in prison and then since you've been out. So uh, thank you so much for everything you do. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me on the show. Another incredible episode of Felony Friday today. Thank you to my outstanding guest today, Trey Johns. She shared her incredible story. There's been so much that she's been through in her life. Really somebody to look up to as someone who has pushed through and turned a lot of negatives into positives. And now, I mean, it's so awesome 
how motivated she is to give back and help others. Looking forward to see what she does with FedFam for life and looking forward to everything else that she does going forward. Gang, I want to tell you about a new level we have in the Lions of Liberty Pride. That's right. You can now join the Lions of Liberty Pride at our new $15 per month level. This level is pretty cool. There's a new thing that that we're offering, a new perk, and that is email of news links. And we have our resident uh, news aggregator, Howie Snowden, who curates the news links and and, uh, pulls them all together. And then they're organized in different categories from uh, liberty to foreign policy to criminal justice to culture to uh, mainstream news, to politics, and to cryptocurrency. And we have several articles in each category, and that's sent out every Monday uh, through Friday to all of our $15 subscribers, all the way up to our $25 and above uh, subscribers. So all those people get that. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from that so far. I think people really enjoy. You can join at that $15 level, or $25 if you want to, by going to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Of course, at that $15 level, you get everything you also get at the 10. The additional thing is the news links. So you get, of course, a t-shirt, a a koozie, and of course, all of our bonus content um, at all of the levels. Five, uh, you just get the bonus content. There's really no other bonus stuff. Other than, Well, you do get access to our Facebook group as well, our private Facebook group. At 10, you get the bonus content, free t-shirt, uh, free koozie, and a, a, st- a discount in the store, a discount in the Lions of Liberty store, lionsofliberty.store to check out all the uh, apparel and merchandise we have there. Of course, 15, I just told you what you get. And $25, you get the daily news emails. You get the... Free t-shirt, free koozie, and all the bonus content. And we have a lot of bonus content every month. If you didn't know that, if you just think it's if you think that we just have these three shows per week, there is a lot of other stuff that we record in addition to these three shows. But in order to get that, you gotta be in the Lions Pride. We have conspiracy corner roundtables. We have a show called Degenerate Gamblers that uh, we're taking a little hiatus on, but we did it through football season, and we'll do it again coming up here into March Madness. Brian does his extra rants, just random random drunken rants. He also does some extra rant pluses and minuses, the, his old show that he uh, that he used to have. And yeah, we, we do all kinds of stuff. Uh, be sure to join the Alliance of Liberty Pride to get access to all this bonus content. And I mean, you're helping us grow the show. And eventually, if we can get to that $1,000 per month level, we're at like $850 right now. If we get to that $1,000 level... We're going to start really touring the country and going to a bunch of Liberty events and recording from there, you know, audio, video, bringing you lots of on-the-scene content. So that is all I got for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. The fires of Liberty burning.